Story goes that in the summer of 1881, Billy the Kid was shot and killed by Sheriff Pat Garrett. The lawman had been on the hunt ever since Billy broke out of jail in the town of Lincoln 78 days prior and finally caught up to the bandit at Old Fort Sumner. It was round about midnight and Pat was waiting inside Pete Maxwell's darkened bedroom when the kid stepped in. Ken S., he asked, noticing the large shape looming in the shadows. Who is it? Pat answered in the form of two shots from his 4440 Colt revolver, and just like that, Billy the Kid was over, at least in his mortal form. His body may have been stuck in the ground the next day, but can no pine box contained the legend that soon emerged. And make no mistake about it, over the decades that followed, Billy the Kid has taken on mythical proportions unrivaled by any other character of the Old West. One thing needs to be established from the get-go, something I'll be repeating throughout this entire series. The irrefutable fact that we have little to no idea who Billy the Kid was. Not really. We don't know where or when he was born, who his father was, or even a clear idea of what he looked like. I mean, sure, we have that one tin type, but let's face it, it ain't the greatest picture in the world. And even Billy's death is shrouded in mystery. There's a lot of stuff we can piece together, sure. And we can oftentimes make educated guesses in lieu of solid historical evidence. But at the end of the day, we're left with a very young man, likely no older than 21 years of age at the time of his death, who has become the most popular figure in all of Old West history. An outlaw to some, a hero to others, but legendary to all. And that legend could be a hard nut to crack. As usual, I will attempt to separate fact from fiction, but as of this recording, despite extensive research by hundreds, if not thousands of people more patient and more intelligent than I, there's just so much we don't know. That said, we're going to give it a try. I mean, why not? After all, there's many a slip, twixt cup and lip, right? Hey, you see the size of that chicken? Regulators! My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Billy the Kid's real name was not Billy. It was Henry, Henry McCarty, one of two boys born to Catherine McCarty. It's a near certainty that Catherine was born in Ireland, likely around the year 1829. When she first came to the United States and where she first lived is up for debate. But we do know that Catherine and her sons, Henry and his brother Joseph, can be found living in Indianapolis as early as 1868. Per city directories, Catherine was the widow of a Michael McCarty. This seems to be a solid source, but which Michael McCarty is anybody's guess. Of course, then you would need to prove that Michael was really Henry's biological father. Given the time period, the mid to late 1860s, many have assumed that Michael McCarty was a soldier. Only problem is, there were a lot of Michael McCartys serving during the Civil War. Over two dozen who enlisted in New York State alone, not to mention Indiana, where Catherine was living. Speaking of New York, the most commonly believed origin story when it comes to Billy the Kid is that he was born in the Big Apple. My personal opinion, based on the evidence that we now have, is that this is the most likely scenario. But as tends to be the case with much of the kid's life, we can't prove it. Billy himself allegedly claimed to have been from New York, at least on a couple of occasions. His stepfather, William Antrim, stated that Catherine's first husband, last name McCarty, presumably Billy's real father, died in New York. And Billy's brother Joseph said he was born in New York as well, per one census. On another census, he claimed Indiana, but you know how it goes with census records. 
Diligent research has even uncovered a baptismal certificate indicating that a Patrick Henry McCarty was born in New York City on September 17, 1859 to parents Patrick McCarty and Catherine, maiden name Divine. Records show that the event took place at St. Peter's Church, which is still in operation to this day. But is this our Henry McCarty, a.k.a. Billy the Kid? Once again, who knows? I don't know if you're aware of this, but there were more than a few Irish immigrants living in New York City in 1860. And quite a few of them had the last names McCarty and even Bonnie, one of the many aliases the kid would take later in life. Hell, someone was even able to find a Catherine McCarty living next door to a William Bonnie on New York's East 12th Street in 1862. Of course, other evidence shows that she was not the mother of Billy the Kid, but you're starting to get the picture, right? This is like trying to find a potato in a stack of Irishmen. There's theories that Catherine lived in New Orleans and upstate New York, and there's claims that she was born in Missouri. To further complicate matters, some even assert that Billy's mother was a prostitute in the slums of Manhattan's Five Points District, that McCarty was her maiden name and Billy's daddy was just a random customer. When it comes to Billy's birth year, we likewise run into several roadblocks. For a long time, it was assumed that Billy was brought into the world on November 23, 1859, which would have made him like four months shy of his 22nd birthday when he got killed. However, that date comes from Pat Garrett's book, The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. Pat's ghostwriter, Ash Upson, was also born on November 23rd. For what it's worth, most historians do doubt that November 23rd date and just assume that Upson substituted his own birthday for whatever reason. By the way, there are aspects of the authentic life of Billy the Kid that are accurate, and there are parts that we know for sure are wrong. It's a source that always needs to be questioned and taken with a grain of salt, but it cannot be totally discounted. There's a lot of evidence that shows Billy being younger than claimed in Pat Garrett's book, though. Newspaper articles, the words of fellow regulators Frank and George Coe, and even Sheriff Harvey Whitehill, the first lawman to ever arrest the kid. They all claimed he was born in 1860 as opposed to 1859. I know we're splitting hairs here, but hey, you also have the words of Billy, who claimed to have been 25 years of age in 1880, which would have meant he was born in 1855. You see what I mean, right? The information's all over the place, and there's just not that much we can nail down as solid, irrefutable proof. To quote the great Bob Bose Bell of True West Magazine, everything about this young man is open to question, including his date of birth. From birth to death, almost every aspect of his life is completely undocumented. Historian and Billy the Kid expert Nora Hinn furthers this sentiment by saying, quote, There are no absolutes. He may just have been born in Indiana. End of quote. Now, me personally, if I had to place a bet right now, I'd say Billy was probably born in New York, probably in the year 1860, and that his father was more than likely named Michael McCarty. Don't worry, this entire series is not going to be this hazy. Things clear up a bit once we pick up the trail in Indiana. That's where Catherine met her future husband, Billy's stepdaddy, William Antrim. About 12 years Catherine's junior, Cougar alert, William was a veteran of the Civil War, albeit just for three months, who was working as a driver and clerk for an Indianapolis Merchants Union Express Company, just a few blocks from where Catherine and her boys lived. Evidently, the pair hit it off as, by the summer of 1870, William and Catherine, with Henry and Joseph in tow, had moved to the frontier town of Wichita, Kansas. They did remain unmarried, however. Catherine and the boys lived on North Main Street, where she ran a laundry service, as Joseph settled on some acreage he purchased just outside of town. And they seemed to do well enough there in Wichita. Both Antrim and Catherine began buying up various properties and empty lots, 
and even Catherine's laundry business was praised in the pages of the Wichita Tribune. As for young Henry McCarty, who would have been around 9, 10 years of age by 1870, he would later be remembered by one resident as a quote-unquote street gammon, sort of another term for a street urchin indicating that the youngster roamed the town with little to no supervision. Worth noting that Wichita in 1870 was 100% the wild and woolly west. Buffalo hunters, gamblers, dancing gals, and wild-eyed Texas cowboys were a common sight, as were shootings and hangings, all of which our Henry would have been soaking in. Sadly, Catherine McCarty would fall ill with tuberculosis. She may or may not have had it before embarking for Kansas, but this sickness would cause the family to move yet again for an even drier climate. As I'm sure you know, the family would ultimately land in New Mexico, but not for another year and a half. Once again, we can't say for sure, but many legitimate researchers believe that the Antrims spent these mystery months in Denver, Colorado. The kid would allegedly tell a few of his pals that he lived in Denver for a spell, as would his brother Joseph. The family would arrive in New Mexico sometime prior to March 1st, 1873, when William and Catherine finally stopped living in sin and tied the knot. The marriage was officiated in the First Presbyterian Church in Santa Fe, and according to both church and Santa Fe County records, there were five witnesses, one of whom was Joseph, or Josie, as his name was recorded, and the other our very own Henry McCarty. Within a couple of months, the family would head southwest a few hundred miles, braving the lands of the Apache, before finally settling down in the bustling metropolis of Silver City, New Mexico. Now, Silver City was, as the name suggests, a mining town. There was a silver strike after ore was discovered in 1870, and by the time Henry and his family showed up, Silver City was home to a little over a thousand souls, the majority of whom were Hispanic. And it would be this Hispanic culture that young McCarty would wholeheartedly embrace. He quickly learned the lingo, came to enjoy the Mexican dishes, the music, the dances, and of course, the young ladies. Stepfather William Antrim did a little prospecting, as well as working in a meat market while Catherine stayed as busy as ever putting her health to the side as she did laundry, baked and sold various pies and cakes, and even took in the occasional boarder in their tiny home. Just a hard-working gal by all accounts. Meanwhile, Henry, possibly now using the last name Antrim, was already letting his mischievous side show. He was in his early teens when the family settled in Silver City, and whereas he was once remembered as a street gammon in Wichita, he and his little running buddies were now referred to as quote-unquote village Arabs. Just another way of saying they were out there running wild. It's at this time we find the stories emerging of Henry's fondness for singing and music. He and his buddies even formed a music group of sorts that performed at the local opera house. Some of the young man's favorite songs included Silver Threads Among the Gold and Turkey in the Straw, both of which can be heard on YouTube if you're of a mind to give them a listen. It probably goes without saying that Henry was quite the dancer, a trait that he might have inherited from his mama Catherine. Both she and her son would attend the many dances held there in Silver City by the Hispanic community, as well as the other shindigs held by the Norte Americanos. Henry and Joseph did go to school, at least for a little bit, and Henry soon gained a reputation as a voracious reader. Billy got to be quite the reader, said Silver City citizen Anthony Connor when remembering young Henry McCarty. He would scarcely have the dishes washed until he would be sprawled out somewhere reading a book. It was the same down at the butcher shop if he was helping around there. First thing you know, he would be reading. Apparently, the kid's reading material of choice was a magazine called the Police Gazette, sort of a trashy collection of pulp and crime stories, as well as just your run-of-the-mill dime novels. Not exactly heavy reading, but hey, you take what you can get in Silver City. 
I've been saying that my whole life. Besides, I'm willing to bet there weren't a book written or a song sung that could stop the future Billy the Kid from getting into trouble. Hence his very first known brush with the law at around 14 years of age. I say the law, but really it was just the stern admonishment of a couple of adult men. Some a few of my listeners could use a bit of. Sometime in 1874, Henry and another boy, Charlie Stevens, concocted a plan to steal some display jewelry and fence it across the border in Old Mexico. The day before the caper could come to fruition, however, Charlie got cold feet and spilt the beans to his daddy. Well, here comes Mr. Stevens and a couple of other men chewing little Henry Ancham's ass out. They even told his mama, who at this point was not doing well at all. Perhaps you've heard the story about Catherine McCarty warning Henry that if he kept acting like this, he'd be dead before he's 21. Well, this is the incident that provoked that alleged comment. And Henry did straighten up, at least for a little while. Probably so as not to put even further stress on his sick mother. Unfortunately for Catherine, it was too late. The jolly Irish lady, full of life, would succumb to tuberculosis that September. And even as she lay dying, I think she knew her husband wasn't going to take much of a hand in the raising of her boys. Hell, William Antrim couldn't even be bothered to stay by Catherine's side as she made her final journey. Nor would he attend her funeral. Before passing, Catherine asked a local lady, Clara Truesdell, to look after Henry and Joseph, which she agreed to. As it turns out, several families there in Silver City would take turns caring for the boys. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to add a little something here. This may or may not resonate with you, but... I think it's worth bringing up. When a child loses a parent, a mother especially, it can be very traumatic. Numerous studies back this up with researchers finding increased rates of depression and even functional impairment in people who lost a parent or parents at a very early age. And this isn't just one of those, ah, it was different back then kind of things. 2023 or 1873, losing a mother is an extremely stressful event when you're 13 or 14 years old. Once again, according to many studies, this can have a lasting impact. In Henry's case, he didn't even have another parent he could turn to in his grief. No aunts or uncles or grandparents. There was nobody other than his brother and the kind citizens of Silver City who took the boys in. I'm just tossing that out there. I'm not excusing anything that Billy does later on, but you have to assume that Catherine's death sure as hell didn't help matters. The Antrim boys would return to school where, per stories from locals, Henry was not only quiet, but also smitten with his teacher, a Mrs. Richards. Years later, when interviewed, she remembered Henry as a scrawny little fellow with delicate hands and an artistic nature. He was always quite willing to help with the chores around the schoolhouse and was no more of a problem than any other boy growing up in the mining camp. Not the best way to be remembered by an older woman you once had the hots for, but hey, what are you going to do? They can't all be stifflers, mom, right? As far as the scrawny part goes, Henry was said to have been little for his age, almost girlish in features, with eyes always dancing and, quote, full of mischievous fun. Of course, the sheriff there in Grant County, Harvey Whitehill, also remembered Henry's eyes. Only the veteran lawman regarded the fun and dancing aspect as shifty and Roman, much like what he called Henry's, quote, rebellious nature. And as I alluded to earlier, it did fall on the good sheriff Whitehill to attempt to scare Billy straight. Before we get to that, let me tell you about the podcast, How the West Was Cast. If you're into old West history, then some tells me there's a good chance you're also a fan of Western cinema. Whether you grew up watching the movies of John Wayne, cut your teeth on Clint Eastwood's Man with No Name trilogy, or consider Kevin Costner to be the screen's quintessential cowboy star, How the West Was Cast is just the podcast you've been waiting for. 
joined screenwriter and journalist Matthew Chernov and film historian and professor Andrew Patrick Nelson as they discuss the beloved masterpieces, forgotten treasures, and curious cold movies that make up the Western film genre. From the timeless classics in the 1940s and 50s to the bold and bloody titles of the 1960s and 70s to the celebrated prestige of Westerns today. How the West was cast explores one of cinema's most fascinating and enduring genres. Look, these guys know movies and they love Westerns. What else could he ask for? That's how the West was cast. Link in the show notes and available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of the Wild West Extravaganza is also brought to you by... All right, and we're back. So here's the deal. In 1874, a then 14-year-old Henry McCarty stole some butter, several pounds of it. Although he was not thrown into jail for this offense, he was strongly reprimanded. And according to one source, spanked by the sheriff himself. That's got to be pretty embarrassing catching swats at that age. But then again, I knew some guys who got licks as seniors in high school. Just between me and you, uh, something tells me that if you're getting swatted in the principal's office as a senior, then you must like it at least a little bit. But then again, nobody asked me. It's also worth mentioning that Billy wasn't just sitting around idly reading books anymore. Shortly after Catherine's death, the brothers were split up and Joseph stayed with the Dyer family whose patriarch ran the Orleans Club Saloon in Silver City. Joseph began working there, cleaning, running errands, and even serving liquor. As such, Henry would often join his brother at the saloon after school left out, gaining an altogether different sort of education. This is where Henry first learned to gamble. Dylan Monty and Pharaoh. Smart as he was, Henry was still very young and consequently very susceptible to falling under the influence of slightly older fools, one of whom was a damn kleptomaniac named George Schaefer, or Sombrero Jack, as he was often called on account of his headgear of choice. Sombrero Jack would steal anything that weren't nailed down, and I reckon Billy soon became his little apprentice. Now, at that time, there was a sizable Chinese population there in Silver City, and a certain portion of the white citizenry were looking to run him out of town. Short of doing anything illegal themselves, they opted instead to sick Henry and the other so-called young Arabs on him. Subsequently, these adolescent hoodlums took to mocking, bullying, and tormenting the Chinese with the express approval of many of the adults. Or at least with the adults turning a blind eye. There are stories of Henry Antrim killing a Chinese man in Silver City after chunking a rock at his head but this is unsubstantiated. While there is evidence that someone was killed in such a fashion, it likely didn't occur until after the kid left town. Just to go ahead and clear the air, there are numerous accounts of people who knew Henry when he lived in Silver City, and they all swear up and down that he never killed anybody while staying there. Hopefully I am starting to paint a picture at least. Henry McCarty is around 15 or so years old, and although he's being passed from family to family, he essentially has no real parental guidance. His free time is spent running the streets with other kids, terrorizing the Asians, or gambling in saloons with much older men. Tossing the trauma of losing his mother, the raging hormones that come with just being a teenager, and his own innate sense of devilment, it's only natural his first real brush with the law was imminent. And that's where Sombrero Jack comes into play. The petty thief burgled the home of one of the Chinese laundry operators, stealing a brace of pistols and a bundle of clothing. Not really considered a big deal because, well, unfortunate sign of the times, but the victim was Asian. The clothing, however, belonged to some white citizens of Silver City, and therein lay the problem. Once again, sign of the times, right? Now, Henry did not help Schaefer commit this crime, 
but he did agree to dispose of the ill-gotten laundry. He had moved from the Truesdale's home into the boarding house of Miss Sarah Brown at this time, and, well, one day while cleaning Henry's room, Mrs. Brown came upon the stolen clothing and alerted Sheriff Whitehill. This was just a little over a week after Billy stole the butter, so this time instead of swats, the sheriff went ahead and threw the kid in lockup. And this does appear to be more of a scared straight situation than anything else. Sheriff Whitehill knew Sobrero Jack was the real culprit and he just wanted to give Henry a taste of incarceration to let him know what was in store should he continue down this wayward path. Hell, young Antrim was friends with the sheriff's kids and even Whitehill's own wife told him to let Henry out and bring him home for breakfast. And he probably would have too. Only thing that stopped him was the kid escaping from jail. They let him alone in the corridor for just half an hour and Henry shimmed up the damn fireplace and made a run for it. A layer of soot traveling behind him. What happened next is a little unclear, at least the details. Some claim that Henry went back to Sarah Brown's place, and I guess she felt kind of guilty, so she put him on a stage bound for Arizona. Others say that he stayed with the Knight family on their ranch, hiding up in the barn while they tried to convince him to return to Silver City and take his punishment. Henry agreed, and they lent him a horse, and instead of returning to Sheriff Whitehill, he went to Arizona. Author Michael Wallace, however, contends that the most plausible theory is that Billy saw refuge with his surrogate mother, Clara Truesdale. Her son, Chauncey, later said that Clara washed Henry's sooty clothes, gave him some money and food, and then put him on a stage bound for Globe, Arizona. Whichever way it shook out, Henry McCarty, a.k.a. Henry Antrim, did indeed flee to Arizona. And it's there that he would spend the next two years. His first stop was likely the mining town of Clifton, where he found and had a falling out with his prodigal stepfather. After Henry explained his situation, Antrim turned him out, saying, If that's the kind of boy you are, you can just get out. We don't know precisely what Henry was up to every step along the way. Obviously, he would take odd jobs, even work cattle on various ranches. He may have worked on the Slaughter and Chisholm ranches during this time, but we just can't prove it. He did for sure run cows at Henry Hooker's Sierra Bonita spread, though. That much we do know. And we also know he started stealing horses. That time spent at the Orleans Club in Silver City was paying off as Henry began turning cards in the mining camps. Hearing that there were easy pickings down at Camp Grant, Henry stole a soldier's horse and lit out. Now, Camp Grant, located about 40 or so miles south of Globe, originally served to provide security from Rovan Apache to the many settlers and miners streaming into the area. For Henry and quite a few others, however, the camp would be regarded as a source of easy money. It's a scene that repeated itself all over the West. If there's a fort or military outpost, you can be sure that whatever town is closest will invariably end up as a place for the soldiers to blow off steam along with their paychecks. Such a town would also draw the types who earned a living off of the soldiers. You know the sort, right? Gamblers, con artists, pimps, and thieves. For your more frontier outposts where a town wasn't handy, as was the case with Camp Grant, the military men would have to make do with what were often referred to as hog ranches. Now, these so-called ranches may or may not have had swine on hand, but they all had whiskey and women, making them a popular destination for their intended clientele. The painfully bored, eternally titillated, and always thirsty fighting man of the United States Army. This particular settlement where Henry found himself, just on the outskirts of Camp Grant, included George Atkins Saloon, a general store ran by an old boy named Milton McDowell, the austere Hotel de Luna, and of course the quote-unquote hog ranch or red light district, the type of place one army officer described as quote, 
tenanted by a hardened and depraved set of wretches as could be found on the face of the globe. Each of these establishments was equipped with a raw mill of the worst kind, and each contained from three to half a dozen Cyprians, virgins whose lamps were always burning brightly in expectancy of the upcoming bridegroom and who lured to destruction the soldiers of the garrison. In all of my experience, I have never seen a lower, more beastly set of people of both sexes. End of quote. And Henry McCarty was having a blast. He was now going by the name Kid Antrim, or just the Kid for short. He was around 15 years old, and I think it's safe to say he didn't exactly have his life figured out. Who does at that age? Henry was young, dumb, and living life the only way he knew how. I doubt there were many thoughts given to putting down roots or planning for his future. Henry was having a good old time and letting the chips fall where they may. Now, it is important to point out that the kid did not drink, nor would he ever develop that particular habit, which makes me question the whole Irish heritage thing, but hey. He did enjoy hanging out in saloons for the gambling and, of course, the ladies, and while he was known to buy drinks for others, he himself rarely, if ever, imbibed. Antrim worked as a cook at the Hotel de Luna for a few days, but just like in Silver City, he soon found himself under the influence of an older ne'er-do-well. The misguided mentor in question was a former soldier and current criminal by the name of John Mackey, and it was the soldiers who were frequenting the Hog Ranch and McDowell's store that became he and Henry's prime targets. Mackey and the kids stole so many horses from the soldiers that they took to trailing extra-long picket ropes inside the bar with them as they drank. Being the enterprising thieves they were, Mackey would just sidle up and distract the marks while the kid deftly and gently cut the ropes outside, making off with the ponies without anybody being the wiser. At least not until they had to walk back to camp and explain to their superiors why they just lost government horse flesh. And by God, enough was enough. A posse of soldiers was formed and they caught the kid red-handed on his way to a mining camp just outside of the San Carlos Reservation. Antrim was ordered off his stolen mount at gunpoint and just left out there in the middle of nowhere. Alive and free, but afoot and all alone in the middle of what was then still very hostile territory. In March of 77, both the kid and Mackey were arrested and handed over to the commander of Camp Grant, but within an hour, Antrim threw salt in the eyes of one of his guards and escaped. He was immediately recaptured, however, and this time placed into shackles by the gleeful camp blacksmith, an old boy named Francis Cahill. Well, once again, later that night, Henry got away, chains and all. The kid spent some time up in Globe, where he reunited with Mackie and found work in the saloons Dylan Monty. And yeah, he supplemented this income by continuing to steal horses. Twice more, Kid Antrim would be arrested, and twice more, he'd escape. Started to see a pattern here. Someone is quite the slippery eel. The kid eventually found his way to Camp Thomas and got a job working in a hay camp. He weren't there long before he asked for and received an advance in pay, a whopping $40 that he used to purchase a brand new six-shooter. Antrim worked in the hay camp for most of the summer of 1877, but soon, foolishly, began showing up again down near Camp Grant, which is how he found himself back in George Atkins' cantina on the night of Friday, August 17th, 1877. Remember that blacksmith who put the kid in shackles, Francis Cahill? Well, it turns out he and the kid had a history. The older Irishman, a three-year veteran of the U.S. Army, was nicknamed Windy on account of him always telling stories and more or less being full of hot air. And although military records show that Cahill was only five foot four inches tall, he was a big man torso-wise. Barrel-chested and with powerful arms of the sword blacksmiths are prone to sprout after swinging a hammer all day. 
and apparently Wendy was a bully to boot. Even before he helped secure the kid back at Fort Grant, he was always hacking on him, giving him a hard time, ruffling his hair, doling out little light slaps on the kid's face, and even throwing him on the ground. All for a laugh. Ha, ha, ha. You know the type, right? They usually target someone smaller or younger who they don't perceive to be a threat. Lord only knows what sort of verbal abuses Wendy was tossing the kid's way as well. It all came to a head that night in Atkins Cantina, though, when Henry Antrim decided he had had enough. Of course, it probably didn't help matters that the kid showed up dressed as a quote-unquote county Jake, that brand-new revolver stuck in his fancy pants and clad in shoes rather than boots, making him stand out like a sore thumb among the soldiers, laborers, and cattlemen, all crowded at the bar looking to quench their thirst. As usual, Wendy started laying into Antrim, mocking him and poking fun. And on this night in particular, Henry began giving it right back. Cahill called Antrim a pimp, likely due to his outfit, and the kid called Cahill a son of a bitch, prompting the older, stronger man to pounce. They wrestled their way out of the cantina and into the street with Cahill easily dominating Henry on account of his experience and size. He bodily lifted the kid up and slammed him to the ground as many as three times before then pinning him down with his knees as he began slapping Henry repeatedly across the face. Onlookers claimed that Antrim yelled out, telling Wendy to let him up, that he was hurting him. Cahill replied, I want to hurt you. That's why I have you pinned down. I guess during all the excitement, Wendy didn't feel one of Henry's small hands slip free and grip that six-shooter stuck in his britches. Maybe he did, and he figured it was just the kid trying to shimmy away. He almost certainly felt that pistol pressed against his side, as witnesses would later say that Wendy straightened up all of a sudden, just a fraction of a second before the kid pulled the trigger sending a bullet ripping into the bully's innards. Wiggling free, Henry hopped to his feet and took off running, leaping on the nearest pony and fleeing into the desert night. Wendy Cahill weren't dead, but he'd soon be. Gut shot as he was, there was just no way of stopping the bleeding. Interestingly enough, we do have Wendy Cahill's deathbed statement, taken early the following day. I, Frank Cahill, being convinced that I am about to die, do make the following as my final statement. My name is Frank Cahill. I was born in the county and town of Galway, Ireland. Yesterday, August 17, 1877, I had some trouble with Henry Antrim, otherwise known as the kid, during which he shot me. I had called him a pimp and he called me a son of a bitch and we took to each other. I did not hit him, I think. Saw him go for his pistol and try to get a hold of it, but could not, and he shot me in the belly. I have a sister named Margaret Flanagan in East Cambridge, Massachusetts and another named Kate Condon, living in San Francisco. Signed, Francis Cahill. And oh boy, did I really want to do that in an Irish accent. I spent an embarrassing amount of time practicing and watching YouTube tutorials, and in the process, I confirmed what I already knew. The only accent that I can manage is the one I was born with. However, in two days, it's going to be St. Patrick's Day. I feel like this is significant because not only am I mostly Irish, according to 23andMe and my own genealogical research. But much of the kid's story revolves around the Irish. His parents were born in Ireland. Wendy Cahill was Irish. And as you'll hear throughout this series, many an Irishman influenced and otherwise affected the kid's life. I feel like not only is Billy the Kid's story a quintessential American story, but it's also an Irish tale as well. Now, I can't do an Irish accent, but I would like to read an excerpt from Stephen Pressfield's book, Killing Rommel. I feel like it's fitting. Not only does it resonate a little something in my soul, but 
It might help to explain a few actions and attitudes throughout the course of this entire series on Billy the Kid. Like I said, this is from Stephen Pressfield in the book Killing Rommel, and he's writing about Irish despair. It goes as follows. Nothing relieves Irish despair. The Irishman's complaint lies not with his circumstances, which might be rendered brilliant by labor or luck, but with the injustice of existence itself. Death. How could a benevolent deity gift us with life only to set such a cruel term upon it? Irish despair knows no remedy. Money doesn't help. Love fades. Fame is fleeting. The only cures are booze and sentiment. That's why the Irish are such noble drunks and glorious poets. No one sings like the Irish or mourns like them. Why? Because they're angels, imprisoned in vessels of flesh. End of quote. And thank you for indulging me. Now, after Cahill's death, a coroner's inquest was held and the six men on the panel declared, quote, the shooting was criminal and unjustifiable, and Henry Antrim, alias Kidd, is guilty thereof, end quote. Had the kid stayed instead of running, there's a good chance he'd have been strung up or killed by some of Wendy's pals. Then again, how many times have we described similar killings on this podcast, killings way more blatantly unjustifiable, that saw the shooter get off scot-free? Even nowadays, I think the kid would have a fighting chance in court, especially if he could prove that he was in fear of his life. A week after the shooting, the horse the kid fled on was returned to McDowell's store. A traveler explained that Antrim had given it to him to return to its owner. Head chopping, it was called, when you borrowed a horse without its owner's permission, riding it a short ways before air quotes borrowing another and sending the used animal back the way you came. It was in such a fashion that the kid made his getaway back to New Mexico. Uh, but notes to him and everybody else, riding his way straight into the damn history books. And that, I think, is going to do it for this first installment in the Billy the Kid series. Oh, and one more thing before I forget. The last series I did on Jim Bridger, there was an episode titled Mormons, where I discussed Jim and his troubles with Brigham Young. Depending on how you listen to this podcast, you may notice the thumbnails that I use. And for the thumbnail of that episode, I posted a photo of Porter Rockwell. This seems to have caused a bit of confusion with people thinking that I mistakenly thought Porter was Bridger? I don't know. Look, you know me, man. I'll tell you if I messed up or not. I used that photo of Porter Rockwell for a reason. For a few reasons. One, there's only like two pictures of Jim Bridger, and I wasn't going to use the same pictures over and over again for all five episodes. Number two, it fit the topic. Porter Rockwell was a Mormon. The title of the episode was Mormons. Porter Rockwell was involved in the Utah War, and he and Bridger both knew each other. And finally, reason number three, it's a great picture. Porter looks like a damn psychopath, and let's face it, it's very eye-catching. I do post each episode on YouTube as well. And on YouTube, if I want to attract new listeners, which I do, it's important that I have thumbnails that stand out. I don't know if I'm any good at it, but I do try to make them more compelling, and the more compelling they are, the more people hopefully I'll be able to reach, like it or not. I'm bringing this up because with this series on Billy, we only have that one verifiable picture of the kid, the famous tintype. I didn't just want to recycle the same photo for each episode, so as you can see, especially with today's thumbnail, I got a little creative. Just in case anyone is popping their knuckles, getting ready to send me an email, I know. The picture of the kid in the top hat playing poker is not Billy. Neither is the croquet picture. The crowded picture in the bar with him and Pat Garrett, that's not Billy either. 
The famous tintype is the only proven photograph of Billy the Kid. Will I unashamedly use the other photos that I know are not Billy the Kid in order to generate interest in this series? You bet your sweet ass I will. All right. Thank you so much for listening. This is going to be a five-parter, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. If you're impatient and you don't want to wait for a new episode each week, well, you are in luck. The entire Billy the Kid series is available right now at patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra. The Wild West Extravaganza only has one tier on Patreon, the $5 a month gunslinger tier. For that $5, you get access to the entire back catalog, even the very early embarrassing stuff that is no longer available to the public. Everything is ad-free and you get early access. So when I drop a series like this, you'll be able to binge the entire thing. Also, just as a bonus, 20% of all proceeds from the Wild West extravaganza is donated to charity, so you have that peace of mind as well. That's patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra. Check out my website at wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button while you're there. Shoot me an email. Let me know what you think. Thank you again for listening. I think this series has been a long time coming, man. Old Billy Bonnie's way overdue. So stay tuned. Uh, speaking of Bonnie, next week we're going to explore where that name came from. We'll take a look at the kid's graduation from simple horse thief to a true blue outlaw. And of course, we'll discuss a little place called Lincoln County. Till then, try not to steal any butter. Unless, of course, you enjoy being spanked by a man in uniform. Adios! Bet your sweet ass I will.